Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast, where we're talking all things film and screen culture. We record on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and we acknowledge their elders, past, present, and emerging. our third podcast for 2021. My name is Joymi Baker and I'm a cinema and TV scholar. I'm joined this episode by my co-host, writer and academic Alexia Canis. Thanks to COVID, we're recording outside of our usual studio, but we hope we sound as good as ever. In this episode, we'll be looking at the work of writer, director and actor Julie Delpy, including her most recent release, My Zoe. We'll also speak with director Beth Elise Hawke, and film historian Shelley Stamp chats about the work of Lois Weber. We'll finish with a postcard from Art with Impact in San Francisco. But for now, let's get on with the show. This episode, we're taking a look at the work of Julie Delpy, in particular her 2019 film My Zoe, which is currently screening and streaming around the world. This latest film from the French-American director and actor is a harrowing sci-fi-inflected domestic drama about an immunologist named Isabel, played by Delpy herself, who co-parents her beloved daughter Zoe with her embittered ex-husband James. When tragedy strikes and the estranged couple lose their daughter, Isabel takes matters into her own hands and visits a renowned geneticist to see if he can bring her daughter back. Joining me in this discussion about my Zoe and Delpy's work more broadly is Dr. Felicity Chaplin, who teaches French and European cinema and culture at Monash University. Felicity is the author of two books, La Parisienne in Cinema Between Art and Life from 2017, and most recently in 2020, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Transnational and Transmedia Stardom. Both of Felicity's books are published by Manchester University Press. So thanks so much, Felicity, for joining us on the Senses of Cinema podcast to talk about Julie Delpy and her latest film, My Zoe. I'm not sure about you, but I'm always really drawn to films either made by or starring Julie Delpy. I have been for a long time. Um, and I was thinking it probably has a lot to do with her role in 90s films like Killing Zoe and Three Colors White, you know, the kinds of films I was watching when I was a teenager, as well as Linklater's before trilogy as well, of course. And of course, I knew that she co-wrote those sunset films and I knew that she directed Two Days in Paris and then Two Days in New York. But somehow I was sort of surprised to read that My Zoe was actually her seventh film that she's directed. Um, and I was wondering if that was just my own massive kind of oversight or whether you think, and I have this suspicion, and I'm wondering whether you agree that her directorial work has sort of flown under the radar a bit. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on, uh, Alexia. I, I, I agree with that statement. I think that, you know, she is someone who flies under the radar and I don't think that her, her work as a director has really had um, a lot of kind of critical and certainly not academic attention. So, um, yeah, I was kind of surprised as well to know that it was her, her seventh directorial kind of feature. I, I was familiar with her like most people um, probably are from the before trilogy and um, from some of her acting work and and the two days um, films so two days in Paris and two days yeah. in New York and I and I was familiar with um, some of the earlier kind of um, two of the French films but um, yeah it's I, I hadn't ever thought about it um, as a whole kind of body of work as being seven feature films so yeah I was kind of surprised as well. 
Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, and I really, I really like Two Days in Paris, especially actually, like it's the kind of film that if it's on somewhere, like I'll always just end up watching it. I really like the dynamic between Delphi and Adam Goldberg. I think it's, you know, genuinely funny, even though it kind of pivots on that sort of cultural clash cliche between, you know, the French and the Americans. Um, I think it's great, but I think maybe because I had associated her with those kinds of comedies, um, I was quite surprised by my Zoe, I think. Um, I felt it was a very intense film and it had a kind of coldness to it that really sort of surprised me. Um, I'm not sure how you felt about it. Yeah, I think um, like the first thing to, to note um, for a Delphi film is to expect the unexpected if you've seen her other films. So if you're familiar with like The Countess, for example, from 2009, it's kind of, you know, uh, kind of historical kind of period gothic, kind of gothic horror film. Then, and then you're familiar with like Lolo, which is like a French film from 2015, which is a kind of a dark comedy and, and Skylab, which is a kind of a family kind of drama with this real warmth and light and kind of like a choral ensemble piece. I think you are aware of the fact that actually she shifts between genres and actually the Countess is nothing like Two Days in Paris. So if, if you're already familiar with that, then my Zoe's not as much of a shock, I think, because even though, again, it's a very, very different film to everything she's done before, you can kind of, you know, with a Delphi film, you can expect the unexpected. I agree with you about the coldness. It, it's definitely in its aesthetic and its kind of tone. There's a real coldness there, um, which is so different to the warmth of, you know, the two days films. And also, you know, Skylab, which is kind of almost bathed in a kind of golden light. And, um, and even Lolo, which has these dark undertones, but it's still ostensibly like a, a comedy. Yeah. And I guess, um, you know, I, I was thinking about that word coldness. Um, I don't even necessarily mean it in a bad way, you know, <laughs> not as if mm. it has no, has no um, humanity or anything, but it seems like a definite kind of decision that's been made aesthetically. And yes. yeah. Um, and I was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, the story is about, a, you know, a critically ill child who then, you know, I mean, it's, I don't think it's a spoiler <laughs> to announce that, of course, at some point in the film, the child passes away. Um, and I was thinking that it would be very easy to kind of imagine a, almost like a classical Hollywood um, melodrama version of this story, actually. Um, and that that would be such a different film to what you get with with My Zoe um, because it's kind of it's a domestic drama and yet it has this almost uh, like a refusal to adopt a melodramatic mode or at least a typical melodramatic mode. I, I definitely agree with that you know it, the film certainly starts off as a kind of a, a family drama and kind of a kind of you know, child custody battle style film you know it, like something like Kramer versus Kramer, but of course it's, it's this completely different film to Kramer versus Kramer, and it it does avoid um, melodrama, I think. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me when I saw the film was the absence of music. And you know, I get the sense that you know there's this absence of music because Delpy does not want to kind of manipulate the audience or or tell us how to feel. Um, I think, you know, maybe what she wants us to do is to think um, rather than feel, or at least, you know, she wants to keep a, a certain emotional distance so that we can feel on our own terms without necessarily being um, kind of encouraged or manipulated by the use of music. Um, 
but ostensibly you know, we can think about the issues that she's laying out for us. And I think, you know, that, that coldness that you talk about, like you said, it's not about a lack of humanity. There's certainly a lot of humanity in that film, but that, that idea of the coldness, um, I think that's also present in this idea of the, the absence of the music. Mm, definitely yeah that's something I, I noticed as well um it doesn't kind of guide you in how to feel about the situation through music as you would expect in a you know in a classical Hollywood melodrama for instance with a comparable um you know story kind of situation but I was I was thinking about the fact that the lack of melodrama um seems to be really important to the film's exploration of motherhood and of mm -hmm. what it is to be a mother in on the one hand and then there was also this interesting thing that I thought you might you might have some thoughts about. Um, there's this interesting kind of distinction made in the film between, again, between French and um, other cultures. There's this incredible mm -hmm. moment um, when Delphi's character Isabel is sitting with her mother, who's played by Lindsay Duncan, and she tell her mother tells her, um, "I should have never like I should never have brought you up in France because now you don't believe in anything." Like the coldness is associated with. <laughs> with her Frenchness, which is so interesting. Yeah, that is a really um, interesting point that she makes there. And maybe that's also linked to that idea of like, I don't know, um, kind of maybe a certain atheism, atheism or um, a kind of an existentialism almost or something um, where there is the kind of the absence of God or something. And there is a, a real focus on, you know, science and, and what, science makes possible for us outside of the realm of you know religion or or god when confronted with these kind of issues like like you said like the um you know the critically ill child um and yeah and i think it's a really good point that you raise about delphi being interested in these kind of um maternal issues and you know lolo is actually such a great um kind of film to compare um, my Zoe with because again it's about like the limits of maternal love and just how far will a mother go in her love for her child um Lolo you know like I said dark comedy very very different treatment but um to my Zoe but nonetheless still kind of thinking through these these ideas yeah I guess maybe that's a good a good thing to kind of um jump back into or to jump into the idea of um Delpy as as a director who has a body of work, um, maybe as an auteur or, you know, or as, you know, as in a director who has a kind of identifiable authorial signature. I thought that might be an interesting thing to kind of think about considering her work does go, seem to go under the radar so, so often, or at least some of it does, like some of it seems mm. to have a presence in pop culture and then other films sort of not, maybe not so much. Um, and I was trying to, you know, um, think about any sort of identifiable patterns or kind of consistencies across the different films that, I, that I've seen. And the thing that really does come to mind for me is that sort of, um, it's like there's a kind of a tension between um, a cosmopolitanism and a sense of dislocation. Um, and the most obvious kind of locales that kind of appear time and time again in her work are Paris and New York and a tension between those, but there's all different configurations. Um, and I think in Maya Zoe, we get, you know, a few more, a you know, different configurations again, different dynamics. Um, it's based in Berlin mostly, but then they end up in Russia. And, um, um, and I wonder if, yeah, I was actually wondering if that connects to any of um, your own work, Felicity, on, on the Parisian and this idea of cosmopolitanism and how you think that kind of connects with Delphi. 
Well, I think definitely that we can read Delpy, you know, as a director, as a, as a star persona, as an actress, as a kind of cosmopolitan figure and as a kind of very Parisian kind of um, cosmopolitan figure in the sense that, you know, she's really across um, those two cultures. And, you know, she's actually naturalized as American, as an American citizen as well. So she considers herself French American. Um, but, you know, Paris itself is a very cosmopolitan city where, you know, there's a lot of encounters with um, different cultures, different languages, different, you know, ideas, for example. Um, and I think, you know, she's someone that shows that, you know, not only does she um, work and, and live across, you know, two continents, but also across um, Europe as well. So, and I think this is something that she brings to her, to her films. And, you know, I think she's definitely interested in the cultural clash, but also that idea that you said about, you know, perhaps kind of being an outsider, perhaps kind of, you know, being out of your comfort zone, not being in your home country, not being in your home language. And we we see that in my Zoe, obviously, um, with, you know, the British, the British man and, and, and the French woman, um, or the French American woman living in Berlin, but then also when, with the couple, the scientist and his wife who are, um, you know, living in, in Russia. And, you know, I think there's a conversation between uh, Isabel, the, the character played by Delphi, and, and the scientist's wife, and they talk about, you know, the difficulty of kind of making friends and, and learning a language and, and being kind of, yeah, an outsider in, in mm. a different country. So I think that's something that Delphi is definitely interested in. Um, one of the things about the Parisienne is that, you know, she's quite comfortable, you know, moving between different cultures and, you know, um, having a kind of a cosmopolitan group of friends. And I think that's true of Delphi um, as a director, but I think it's also yeah, something that she brings to her to her um, to her characters in her films. Yeah. I was wondering if you thought there were any kind of recognizable connections between her style as an actor and, and a filmmaker. This might seem, I'm not sure if this seems like an abstract kind of question, but um, for me there's a kind of like a tension between restraint and openness sort of happening both in her performance a lot of the time, but I feel like it also somewhat characterizes her films as a director as well. It's kind of like she's half Hollywood narrative and half European art cinema. And mm. going back to your point at the beginning of our conversation about not knowing, like expect the unexpected. It's like, you never know when you're gonna switch between these different modes. Yes. Um, and my Zoe seemed to really kind of do that in the sense that sometimes you felt like you were watching a European art film um, and other times it kind of, it seemed to suddenly conform to some expectation that you might have around Hollywood narrative, but then it kind of switches again. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. And I really think with Delphi, I think there is a connection um, between her work as an actress and, um, you know, her filmmaking practice. Um, I think also we need to make the distinction between Delphi as an actor in her own films because she's obviously the screenwriter and, and you know, she, um, she kind of in a way molds the character and determines the kind of performance style that that particular film will warrant versus, you know, her as an actress in, in films directed by others. But I think, yeah, there's, I think you're right when you talk about the restraint and the openness in her performance style, because I also sense that as well. And I, I also see it as a kind of, there's a lightness and a darkness. Yeah, there's the openness, there's the restraint, there's like the comedic side, there's a very serious side. There's always a kind of a light and dark. And I think in some films, the, the light and the comedic um, and the openness comes much more to the 
like and that's you know maybe that warmth that we were talking about that we see in two days films but it's kind of lacking in the, in my Zoe um but yeah then there's also this very serious dramatic side to her performance style which you know we see in the countess um and there's very few kind of light-hearted kind of moments or very few um comedic kind of moments in something like the countess and i think that's a kind of a performance style that she brings to to my zoe so i think you know in her own film, certainly Delphi's acting style is always connected to her filmmaking. So in other words, it, it kind of changes across her films. Um, I wouldn't say there's one kind of acting style for Delphi anymore, that there is a kind of a single film style or a single kind of genre or a single um, kind of aesthetic to her films. But yeah, I think there's certainly the, yeah, I liked how you said that, the, the restraint and the openness or the line and the dark. I think there's that aspect in her performance style, which we do see in her approach to filmmaking. I think in terms of Delphi as an actress, like if we reduce her just to like the before trilogy, like the Linklater films, um, then I think, you know, something like The Countess or My Zoe seems very different and like a huge kind of departure and, and out of character um, for Delphi. Um, I think in terms of the films she's made with other directors, um, I, I think especially her early film roles where she plays those more kind of ingenue kind of roles, I think that's very different to the, the roles that she writes for herself. And well, when I say writes for herself, I actually read an interview that sometimes it's not necessarily that she writes them for herself, but she often struggles to get funding for her films. So one of the ways that she can get the money to make the film is if she casts herself um, and, and agrees to star in them. But um, yeah, I think... Yeah, so I shouldn't say she writes them for herself, but I think certainly the roles that she ends up playing that, that she has written um, uh, are quite different to the some of those earlier ingenue kind of roles that she played in and her performance style in those films. I, I don't know, what do, what's your kind of sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with you on, on that point. And it's, um, you know, when I think about it, I feel kind of complicit in that um characterization of her stardom because you know I grew up watching those films and I I love that the character of Celine in those films yes you know and when I saw uh Two Days in Paris I remember thinking that it, it you could actually think about that film as belonging to the same diegetic world as as the before films right it's like the same character at a different phase in her life mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know and I actually even remember thinking that Ethan Hawke's film, The Hottest State, also belonged to the same kind of diegetic world. It's like earlier. <laughs> so, yes. so there was very much a sense, and maybe it comes out of the fact that, um, you know, Linklater and Delpy and Hawke wrote those films together. So there's this real collaboration that's quite special and maybe quite unique um, in some ways. It has this kind of world-building function that's very persuasive and, you know, um, um, uh, alluring and and whatever, mm. um, but I think that yeah, it would be a mistake to kind of re to reduce her um, her stardom and her um, the dynamics of her performance to to that character type only because it's you know when you think about the seven films that she's directed as well as all the other films that she's you know she's acted in, um, there's a huge dynamic range of of things yes. done. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. But I can I can see that um, it's easy to fall into that trap of wanting to, in a way, conflate Delphi with Céline from the Before trilogy and, and with Marion in The Two Days and even Violette, the character that she plays in, um, in Lolo, because that is more like your classical kind of Delphi performance style. That is like the classic kind of um, Delphi kind of star persona. And that's much more how she's like, obviously, in her interviews and in her own kind of life, if you, if you can think of her own life in that way. Um, you know, it's that real kind of um, that openness, that, that quick way of talking, the, the kind of witty banter, the kind of um, garrulous kind of neurotic, um, you know, and she's sort of spoken in interviews about how, like, in a way, these films, like the two days films and even the Before Trilogy, like there are autobiographical elements. Like she is someone I think who, you know, there are autofictional aspects to her filmmaking. Um, so I don't think it's really, you know, a mistake or an error to want to conflate those characters with Delpy. But I think, yeah, if, if in doing so, then that's when I think, oh, wow, like my Zoe, it's a real departure. But then I guess if we look at the Countess, um, which, you know, is a shame because it didn't get a very big distribution and it's not a, a widely kind of seen film. But um, I think if we think about my Zoe in relation to a film like The Countess, we realise that oh, she has a much wider performance range and, yeah, she has this ability to play very um, serious kind of dramatic roles. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, all the more reason to kind of, yeah, to start to think about her work as, a, as an entire body of work and to go back and look at some of those films that are less seen, as you say, um, and yeah, get a better um, picture of like the incredible body of work that she's amassed to this point. I think on that point too, like if we look across that body of work, like I think you can see, um, you can see a kind of an authorial signature, like you can see um, approaches like even though it seems quite eclectic as a body of work um, I think we can see that there are common approaches to her filmmaking practice you can see um, you know recurring elements recurring themes uh, throughout that so can I talk about that for yeah, like some yeah. yeah so for me I think you know um, I think like in terms of approach I think screenwriting is always really important. Obviously, you know, she writes all of her own films. And like you said, she actually, her and Hawk and, and Linklate actually wrote the, the Before trilogy together. I know she wasn't credited on the, on the, first, on the first film, um, but she more or less, you know, Hawk and her have come out and said, well, actually, we, we more or less kind of co-wrote this. Um, but I feel like all of her films are always very well scripted. And I think the dialogue is always, you know, important. And... I think there are always kind of these strong kind of women characters and like characters that are often accompanied by a certain kind of, you know, vulgarity or frankness or kind of a, a volatility or an involved kind of openness or something. Um, but there's always these kind of stories about women and um, like a female kind of point of view or perspective that she brings to, to each of her films. Um, I think there's always across all of her films, a strong aesthetic or distinct visual style. And again, this aesthetic changes according to the genre of the film, but nonetheless, there's always a very strong visual style. And you know, you spoke about that um, with My Zoe. It was just such a striking kind of film with this very particular kind of um, deliberate kind of aesthetic in terms of its, mm -hmm. its coldness, perhaps. Um, 
I think, you know, she's someone who as a director pays really close attention to the kind of the details and the visual details of her, of her film. I also think the other thing that's really interesting uh, across the films in terms of approaches is her, um, her, I guess, interest in time. And I think she, you know, she's also known as someone who often edits a lot of her own films. Again, it's usually a monetary question, I think, for her. It's less about wanting complete creative control. But I think, you know, her films are, you know, meticulously edited. And, you know, I think, um, again, like with, um, with the way the aesthetic changes, the editing changes depending on the, on the type of film. So uh, the two days films, for example, there's a lot of montage, there's a lot of fast paced editing, there's lots of cuts, it's edited in that particular way. Whereas my Zoe, like there's a lot of long takes, there's the use of the dissolve. Um, so I think that's something else and, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that, yeah, it's an interesting point that you make that, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it might come out of resourcing, <laughs> like, or lack of resourcing, you know, um, but it does kind of, um, it means that the authorial signature kind of extends across the, the different aspects of the production um, in really, really interesting ways. Um, and I think about actually um, the ending of two days in Paris and the ending of my Zoe there's something interesting about the rhythm it almost feels like they recall one another like all of a sudden mm -hmm. they're at the end <laughs> and yes. you know that's and that's that's something that two films that seem very different on the surface I feel really have in common or there's something there's something linked there between and I think that really is happening through the editing um, so yeah I completely agree yeah that's such a good point I hadn't thought about them as being kind of in dialogue with one another in in that particular way but yeah definitely mm. I mean I think the other thing is in terms of an authorial signature I think two recurring kind of elements that are across all of the films is this kind of auto-fictional or autobiographical elements um and one thing I thought was really interesting is that um Delphi had said in an interview that um Kishlovsky had sort of given her this advice really early on in her career when she was talking to him about, you know, wanting to be a director. Um, and I'm going to quote Delphi. So she said, uh, he said, I had to make movies that feel like me. There's no point in copying someone else. You just have to follow your own path. And I think, you know, that's a really interesting kind of, you know, advice that Kishlovsky gave and that Delphi kind of, you know, took on because in a way, these films, they do feel like Delphi films. Like, they're so different across, like, their, their genres in, in some respects and their, their tonality and, and the performance style can shift. But I feel like they're kind of unmistakably Delphi films. Um, and, you know, maybe the autofictional and autobiographical elements add to that. I also think there's also always a kind of a philosophical element and there's always a sort of an aspect of or an element of philosophical debate um, and, you know, that's obviously there in the screenwriting in the before trilogy as well. Um, and when I talk about a kind of um, philosophical elements, obviously, I mean less, less on a theoretical level, but much more in the sense of a kind of a reflection or a meditation on the human condition. Um, I don't know, is that something that you kind of yes definitely and I suppose that um you know again it's one of those elements that you could um perhaps mistakenly think comes out of the the link later kind of uh ness <laughs> you know like his obsession with his own kind of interest in temporality and in the human condition and all that sort of thing and because she's been so closely linked to that um that collaborative project um but I think that it's uh 
it's it ha when you think about it across the body of work like you're suggesting um it's definitely um consistent across across the films and it, it is a little bit different actually from the Linklater films that don't have Delphi in them right like I think that his interest in temporality and those kinds of questions or philosophical questions is different to to Delphi's it's just that they happen to kind of meet in the middle sometimes and make these great movies right mm -hmm. um but there is this kind of consistency um in terms of the interest in those kinds of questions for sure um and maybe, maybe it connects to what you said earlier. I think, um, you know, it has a little bit more of an existential kind of um, flavor or something than what the kind of straight link later <laughs> um, mm. questioning around this sort of stuff does. Um, and I think that in my Zoe, you know, it plays out in relation to, to science, which is particularly interesting, you know, it yes. plays out in relation to questions around um, ethics. Mm. And genetics which you know I kind of just didn't expect but it was really compelling and I mean I'm thinking too about like in terms of other themes I think that run through all the films are like always these kinds of questions of sex and death but yeah female desire female sexuality aging and you know the aging female I mm. think questions of death immortality like this idea of the passing of time mm. um and then also relationships, which I guess ties into some of these ideas as well. So whether that's the, the romantic couple, like in, in the Two Days films or in Lolo, whether it's more about families and family dynamics, which is, you know, in My Zoe, but it's also in Skylab, it's in, it's in Lolo as well. Um, it's also really very much present, I think, in Two Days in New York, that, that question of you know, of the family and the blended family and then the extended oh, yeah. family that come to visit. and mm, mm. Um, But filial relations as well, I think she's interested in. So mm. the mother and the son relationship, the mother and the daughter relationship. Yeah. Um, and part of that, I guess, that that question of relationships also that she's interested in is, um, like we talked about before, those kind of cultural clashes or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the language barriers or the, the cultural barriers between couples, um, outsiders or the, the odd couples. So we have like, um, you know, the couple in Lolo, like the country bumpkin, who's with, you know, the kind of you know, intellectual kind of, you know, bohemian bourgeois Parisian uh, in Lolo. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think they're all kind of things that, that run through her body of work. And I think, we might not see um, an authorial signature when we first look because they seem quite different. Like the Countess seems so different to Skylar, which seems so different to My Zoe, which seems very different to the Two Days films. Um, but yeah, if we take a closer look at them and, and sort of we can see the recurrence of these same kinds of obsessions and uh, around things like, yeah, sex and death for example um and yeah the philosophical elements the autofictional autobiographical elements and like you were talking about like that the editing and, and the, the interesting temporality in the films and the strong aesthetics and the, the screenwriting i guess yeah well thank you so much felicity thanks it's been great to talk to you thank you so much for for having me on it's been an absolute delight to speak about Delphi and to, to think through not just my Zoe but also you know how my Zoe kind of invites us to think back over um, Delphi's career as a as a director and also a screenwriter yeah next up I chat with Professor Shelley Stamp from the University of California Santa Cruz 
about the extraordinary career of actor, director and studio head Lois Weber, a pioneer of the silent film industry. Shelley is author of the book Lois Weber in Early Hollywood and she provides the commentary on many DVD releases of rare silent films. Thank you for joining us for Senses of Cinema. Um, in your book, you mentioned that in early Hollywood, the three top directors were considered to be D.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille and Lois Weber. So I wondered if you could speak to her prestigious reputation in that very early era of the industry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable that um, most people that know anything about the history of cinema would recognize the names Griffith and DeMille, but there's a lot of people that don't recognize Lois Weber's name, and that would be surprising to uh, anyone in 1915, 1916, 1917, when she was really at the height of her career. And she was somebody, along with Griffith and DeMille, who in those early years of the feature film was really advancing the art of cinema. Um, she made some very early feature films and took on very serious subjects and brought into cinema very serious subjects. So her first feature-length film was an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, a very serious, uh, highbrow project, you know, that she took very, very seriously. Um, and her 1915 film, Hypocrites, was uh, acclaimed at the time, right, as a sort of uh, bold imagining of the possibilities for this new art form. So she was really recognized as somebody who was at the forefront of developing film language as it was being developed um, in the early decades of the 20th century. And so it's such a shame that she's been forgotten because she really was um, hailed at the time. Um, it's interesting, as you say, she sort of got left out of Hollywood history as they were writing that narrative about themselves later in the industry. Did that create some challenges for you in, in researching her? Yes. Um, yes. So she was really written out of the narrative of histories of Hollywood. Weber and a whole generation of female filmmakers, right? She was um, inarguably the top female filmmaker um, in the early days in Hollywood, but she was not alone, and that's important to stress, right? There was a whole generation of female filmmakers working at many different studios, working at independent production companies, making a whole range of films, you know, um, melodramas, comedies, action-adventure films, um, serials, features, everything, right? And that whole generation was forgotten in the first histories of Hollywood that were written in the late 20s and early 30s and tended to write about women only as stars. That was really the only way that they could remember women's contributions to Hollywood. Um, and so that made it difficult in the sense that there wasn't a lot of subsequent writing about her. I mean, I did benefit from uh, Anthony Slide's research, which he did uh, in the 1970s. Um, but what I did was I went back to the original trade periodicals, the original newspaper coverage, original publicity materials, original fan magazine coverage. Um, and that allowed me to see 
just how prominent she was in her time. And to an extent that, frankly, I was even surprised at how prominent she was at the time. I hadn't fully expected to see that. Um, and and the other challenge, I think, in, in kind of reconstructing her history beyond the fact that she wasn't really written about in early histories of Hollywood, and, and Hollywood histories continue to celebrate men, right, to this day, there's, that's one challenge. The other challenge is that she had, she left no uh, memoir or personal papers or letters or diaries or anything of that sort, right? Um, she did reportedly write a memoir in the late 1920s and tried to get it published, uh, did not get it published, and then the manuscript was lost, um, never to be found. So she tried to write herself into history, um, but that manuscript, there, so there was no there was nothing of that level for me to work with. And that was another challenge, right? I could only work with the kind of superficial coverage of newspapers and fan magazines and trade periodicals and things like that. So I didn't have personal papers or personal photographs or anything like that. And so that made it challenging too, right? Um, luckily, she gave a lot of interviews, uh, you know, during her career. She wrote... Um, newspaper columns uh, about working in the industry. So there, I, had, I did have her voice in some sense, um, but it was very much her public voice and her public persona. So the book ended up being partly about her public persona because that's what I worked, that's what I had to work with, right? And it became... Well, she becomes like a star right, herself, doesn't she? Right, exactly. And that's that's what distinguishes her really from Griffith and DeMille, right? If we, if we she's, she's on their level in terms of someone who is um, seen as a very serious um, film artist, right? But they're, they don't become celebrities in the way she did. Um, they're not profiled in the way she was in not just movie magazines, but general interest magazines um, publish her. You know, she's in a, a Sunset Magazine, which is a kind of lifestyle magazine for the Western American states and as a kind of interesting Westerner, right? Um, so she's, she's a kind of subject of curiosity because she's a woman working in this uh, new, very uh, successful, profitable industry, and A, and B, she's, she goes on to make very controversial films about uh, very difficult topics in American culture in those years. You know, the fight to legalize contraception, the fight to abolish capital punishment, drug addiction, poverty. Um, she really takes most of the big issues on. So as a result, she becomes a kind of celebrity, a kind of um, example of modern womanhood. Um, uh, and so, so that was really interesting to me, too, is to sort of think about how and why she becomes a celebrity and what it is about her that's profiled. And I became particularly interested in how her, um, she had for, for, her, the early years of her career, she worked in tandem with her husband, and they were a kind of professional couple that collaborated together. Um, they appeared on screen in their early films. She wrote the films. They co-directed them. And so there was a lot of early publicity about that kind of a marriage and that kind of a sort of prof a professional collaboration uh, 
uh, between men and a man and a woman as equals. So all of that became really interesting to me. Uh, you know, as as interesting as her films, which are pretty great too. I I became really interested in her public persona. So let's turn to one of her films now, The Blot, because um, this one is celebrating its hundredth anniversary this year. Um, and it's interesting as taking it as an example of, of her work, although certainly, as you say, she covers a really wide range of social issues in particular that can be quite shocking even today's viewers, I have to say. Um, so in the blot, Andrew Griggs is a poorly paid professor whose wife struggles to put food on the table, while their daughter Amelia works at the local library and has a range of suitors. And they're all from quite vastly different social statuses. It's kind of like they each represent a different tier, if you like, in society. So I wonder how you see the blot fitting into her body of work. Well, it's it's a really interesting um, film. It's, it's the last film released at her um, own studio, Lois Weber Productions, right? She um, She's so successful at Universal um, by 1917. She's that she's Universal's highest paid director and makes all these successful films. But she's able to go out on her own and have her own studio. She's one of the first directors to have their own studio in Hollywood, male or female, right? Um, but by 1921, um, it's more difficult for those independent studios to operate um, because the major studios are kind of consolidating power and pushing out the independents. And um, at her own studio, Weber continues to make films that um, tackle really difficult subjects. So the film that is released before the blot is a film called What Do Men Want? And it's a film that includes a scene where a uh, young woman who is unmarried and pregnant um, uh, and is refused by her um, lover um, commits um, public suicide in a park. Right? And uh, Weber had a distribution contract with Paramount. Paramount refused to distribute the film and <laughs> dissolved their contract. Uh, and so I, this is a long way of saying that The Blot, which is the film that's released by her production company after that, after the severing of the Paramount contract, is a film that is similarly serious about public issues. Um, and in this case, it's not something quite as sensational as pregnancy outside of marriage and, you know, what do men want? But it, it's about the sort of serious issue of um, the undervaluing um, both culturally and economically of um, clergy in um, in America, right? And clergy and educators, right? So uh, Amelia Griggs, the, the woman at the center of the film, the young woman at the center of the film, is the daughter of a college professor who is underpaid and lives in virtual poverty with her mother and her siblings. And one of her suitors is a clergyman who is similarly underpaid as her, as her father, right? And so it's a film, it's a kind of indictment of um, the, the, the value that society refuses to place on, uh, on 
clergy and educators, who, both of whom Weber felt were very important <laughs> members of society, right? And it sort of tells that story through this, this dating story of Amelia Griggs. And of course, the other suitor is a wealthy playboy. Um, uh, and so it... It's, it's a film that, it, and it tells, what, what, what I think is a, a real testament to Weber's artistry in the blot is the way she tells the story of, of this kind of genteel poverty, right, um, through very subtle cinematic ways. This is a film that's all about the details of the way that the um, poverty is experienced by the mother who can't feed her family, who wants to serve her clergyman a nice tea when he comes over to court her daughter. Um, and, and that there's all these lovely little tiny details of the home and the kitchen that are shown in close-up and tiny details on characters' faces, on the mother's face, on Amelia, the daughter's face. Um, and so it's a very it's in some ways a modest film, right? It's taking on a kind of modest social issue. It tells it through the story of this modest family. Um, but it is an incredible testament to visual storytelling and, and to Weber's ability in visual storytelling. Um, you know, she made some some spectacular epic films. Uh, you know, the, the dumb girl of Portici is this huge, uh, you know, adaptation of an opera, grand spectacle. She's capable of doing that. But the blot shows us what she can do um, with incredible subtlety, I think. Uh, and so it's a very interesting uh, example of the way she kind of, you know, at her own production company, continues to, to pursue difficult social issues. Um, and and continues to show herself to be a, a, a kind of consummate filmmaker. Yeah, there's lots of lovely little visual details, as you say, particularly like the Griggs home, which to begin with doesn't look that bad, right? right? And then you start to notice the little details. So when the suitor sits down, his chair grabs a little hole in the rug and he's trying to pull his chair in and doesn't know. And then we get the close-up of, of this, this torn hole in the rug and how then he's embarrassed for her because he's noticed the whole, yes. you know, and we've noticed as, as an audience with him, we share that embarrassing moment. Yes, yes. There's, there's lovely plays in the film on um, sight lines, you know, who notices what, when, and who's trying to pretend they don't notice and <laughs> or prevent other people from noticing. And again, that's just a lovely, subtle use of, uh, a, of a visual cinematic language. Yeah. Um, in an interview with Columbia University's Women's Film Pioneer Project, you mentioned that many of the debates that we're still having today about gender and filmmaking actually trace back to the beginning of the film industry with writers and directors such as Weber. I wondered if you would speak to that a bit more about how you see where we are now in comparison to where we were then. Yes. Uh, I, it, I find it incredibly frustrating, right, that, that we are still debating what to me seem like pretty elemental questions that were answered over 100 years ago. So <laughs> questions like, um, can uh, an action adventure 
film with a female lead be successful? Yes. There were many, many, many made 100 years ago plus, and they were very successful. Uh, can a woman write and direct said action-adventure serial, regardless of whether it has a female lead or not? Yes, and yes, done 100 years ago. Um, can women make films that are popular with everybody? Or do female directors make only chick flicks? No. Again, proven 100 years ago, right? Um, Lois Weber made Universal's top box office success in 1916, Where Are My Children? So yes, why are we still debating these, these elemental questions? And it's, it's because we've forgotten this history. It's because there's been this incredible amnesia about Hollywood history that, you know, as we said a minute ago, it, it started at the beginning of Hollywood history in the late 20s and early 30s, that the women were already being written out of that history. And so 100 years later, we're seeing the consequences of that amnesia, right? And it has real consequences for women directing now, who are told, oh, we don't, ooh, I don't know if we should risk a big budget on you, or ooh, I, I don't think it's right for you to be directing action-adventure, or ooh. Um, so it has real consequences for them, and it has real consequences for a younger generation of aspiring filmmakers <clears throat> who think they don't have foremothers, <laughs> um, right? Because, but they do, they do. And so it's it's extremely frustrating for me to see these questions debated every single time a, uh, you know, a female director comes onto the stage, right? And, and, and um, the other thing I might add, too, is since we, we started out talking about the way I kind of looked at Lois Weber's public persona and how she kind of presented herself or had to present herself or chose to present herself in, um, in the early film industry, I'm also always very attentive to how female filmmakers are presented or present themselves in the industry. And I think that there, there was a hundred years ago for Lois Weber and there still is now a kind of tension for all for female filmmakers about being um, about how they about, about about being a kind of object of of visual attention, right? Um, the way in which they kind of have to present themselves um, that's very different from the way male fem filmmakers um, choose to present themselves or are presented by um, by news outlets or publicity mechanisms. So I think this we're dealing with a long history of um, of sexism in the industry that is really still haunting us. Um. Yeah, and it's interesting. When I went through um, film school, certainly no one mentioned Lois Weber, whereas now she starts to appear on more curricula. But that's a very small subset. It's it's not the general public. It's certainly not the people who are greenlighting projects. So there is this kind of collective cultural amnesia that we're dealing with and that, you know, through your work and, and others that we're trying to address. Yeah, absolutely. It's that's that's very important to me that that this work that I'm doing and, and many other film historians are doing on early female filmmakers and early black filmmakers in the US that that work doesn't stay, you know, in the academy or university classrooms that that really the message gets out there. And so I know a number of us are really committed to um, 
you know, getting films circulating on Blu-ray and DVD so people can see them, getting them on streaming services, um, getting uh, more popular histories out in book form or, you know, podcasts like this or a newspaper coverage. All of that I know is really important to all of us because that's when things start to change, you know. Um, uh, but it, it's a slow process. I, it, it's happening it's slower than I would like it to happen, but I think it's happening, and so that that's a good, a good thing. I've been speaking with Professor Shelley Stamp, and her book, Lois Weber in Early Hollywood, is published through University of California Press. I'd also recommend checking out her created DVD collection, Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers, which won a 2018 special award from the New York Film Critics Circle and features several Weber films. Thank you very much, Shelley. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Next, Alexia speaks to Los Angeles-based director Beth Elise Hawke, whose recent documentary film Breaking Bread explores the Asham Arabic Food Festival in Haifa, Israel, where Arabic and Israeli chefs come together to create signature dishes that celebrate the food of their region. So your film Breaking Bread is a film about food, of course, but it's also about food that exists within a very particular context, a context that's often associated with unrest stemming from cultural and religious and political difference. So I wonder if you might tell us about how you came to this project. Was it via food specifically or was food more of a device for opening up other bigger questions? First, Alexia, I would just like to thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an honor to be speaking about my film with you. Um, and as you are sort of referencing, this is a film that basically says food is the great uniter, um, where political and religious differences fall to the wayside in the kitchen, right? Um, for me, it I found out about it because I live in Los Angeles and I was sitting in my car in traffic and Dr. Nopatamna Ismail, who was the first Palestinian Muslim Arab to win Israel's master chef was speaking about how she had just won and she was on a mission to bring Jews and Arabs together through food. And I also like to think of myself as a foodie, somebody who's, who's obsessed with all the different food cinema and food shows from you know Jiro or Euro Dreams of Sushi to Chef's Table. And when I heard this message, and it's, it was a message that you never hear coming out of the Middle East, right? Something positive, the media likes to focus on the negative. And I said, wow, if this is something that is authentic, I would love to tell this story. I got home, got on the internet, you know, reached out to Dr. Nov on Facebook, and we were, you know, connected within a matter of minutes. And we started speaking about what she was doing. And eventually she let me know about this Hasham Arabic food festival that she was doing in Haifa, Israel, um, where again, uh, she was pairing Jewish chefs and Arab Muslim chefs and Arab Christian chefs together, where they would create different dishes uh, together, collaborating in the kitchen. And I said, wow, we have to tell this story. It's incredible. And it was incredible. It, was, it didn't disappoint. And um, it's been an absolute joy for me and uh, to be able to you know, bring a little positivity, a little bit of joy. I'm getting emails all the time now how people are so happy when they leave the cinema from this film. And it just you know, makes me beyond happy, so. 
That's great. Yeah. I mean, it really does have that. It has that effect when you leave. You, I mean, you feel really hungry for one, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. That's the other comment. Where do we get the hummus? We're starving kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I was going to, I was going to say actually that um, Dr. Knopf is, she's just amazing. <laughs> she's just yes. such a great, such a great character. Um, and you know, such an incredible kind of find <laughs> in terms yes. of subject, I suppose. But it did strike me that all of the chefs that you profile in the film are actually really fascinating and really great on camera as well. And I was wondering what yeah. that process was like of, you know, how you found them and what it was like working with them. I'm not sure well, if many of them had been on, you know, on film before, for instance. That was a gift, wasn't it? Because I had a very small budget for this film and I had very limited days. And the fact that I could find these characters was incredible and it wasn't difficult. They were all there. It was basically, I would go and meet with one and they were fantastic. So we'd add them to the mix and then go to the next. And almost everybody we met right away and those were the people we featured you know because they were all so fascinating such great characters um i'm trying to think i believe salah cordy had been on a, a, a cooking competition show in the past but i would say the rest of them no they were all chefs that are just have incredible personalities and <laughs> and are you know uplifting and make great food yeah so lucky me <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, sort of natural yeah. storytellers, which was really, yeah. really fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the film opens with a quote from uh, Anthony Bourdain, which, um, which is food may not be the answer to world peace, but it's a start. You know, it's got that kind of, it's so characteristically Bourdain, right, in that sort of right. melancholy, but kind of hopeful at the same time. And, and I thought that that the quote really encapsulates the attitude of many of the characters in, in your film, but also the tone of the film itself in the sense that the film, I think really does a great job of balancing this sort of turbulent history and reality of the, of the region, um, balances that with seeing food as a, a kind of a space for hope. And I was wondering how difficult that was to achieve or how you, how you kind of worked to achieve that sort of sense of balance between, you know, not ignoring what was what's happening, but at the same time, you know, exposing this kind of this this place where people can kind of work together and come together. Yes, um, I think it would be unrealistic to say, oh, food is going to solve the Middle Eastern conflict. <laughs> so I'm not. I, I wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be for me to, to have that job, right? But it was hopeful. And the, I couldn't believe when I stumbled upon Anthony Bourdain, for whom I, you know, I'm a huge fan. And when I found that quote, I couldn't believe how well it fit the movie because it was almost parroting some of the messages that the chefs were saying without knowing about that quote. For example, Dr. Nofa Tamna Ismail talks about how it's all about small steps, right? It's, it's so the food, uh, the food allows people to connect on a level of humanity. Suddenly you don't, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Christian, you're not a right, you're not a left, you're not an extremist, you're not a this, you're not, no, you're just a person. And every, all of these people cook, all of them had influences from their grandparents. If they were in the kitchen together, you know, food is the type of thing when you're in the kitchen together. And if they all make hummus, 
somebody's making hummus and, and then suddenly it allows for the other person to say, well, what do you put in yours? Or what do you put in, in yours? And suddenly it's, it's a conversation. And what Amos Sion says in the film, uh, or at least in the trailer, he says, the difference between en uh, strangers to enemies is too small. And so when you cook and you speak together about the ingredients or about your grandparents or the influences, suddenly you are not a stranger, right? And so if you're not a stranger, it's a little bit more difficult to be an enemy. And that's really all this is about. And I feel like it's important, at least to me, just for my vision, my, my vision of life, it's, it's so important for us to see each other as people uh, and find the commonality. We can, we believe me, we can all find the differences. So if we wanna focus on differences, that's our choice, right? But it doesn't make our day a good one or we could try to find a connection because a lot of us have commonality and connection and to me that's a better way to try to live our lives and really that's what I say in this film and and I'm saying it because that's the voices that I found in this film yeah I mean um uh my family is my family's Greek um, and I was, it struck me like during the documentary, there was some foods that, um, that they were, that they were making, particularly the Syrian chef and the, that kind of the wheat that has yogurt. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we have a version of that called Tathana and it just, I felt so, um, uh, moved by the kind of connection that I didn't, hadn't realized existed beforehand. Um, like my connection to, you know, a region that I've never been to. Um, it was really, really moving and it kind of, yeah, struck me again, as it has many times in the past and yet it kind of it still does, how um, how much of a force food can be in terms of feeling, yeah, connected. Um, I, I love hearing that. I mean, I do, there is that section as, as you're mentioning called the politics of food. Uh, it's, it, it's tongue in cheek, but in any event, it, it talks about, this area called the Levant, which is what Asham means, um, which is what the name of the festival is. And the point is, is that it's an area and before the 20th century divided it all up into countries, it was an area. So the food was, that's why you find the same food in Turkey, in the film, at least in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Syria, in, Syria, in Jordan, in Israel, um, West Bank. Everybody has the hummus, everybody has the falafel, everybody has, you know, everybody talks about the salad that's the cucumber tomato yeah. salad. So, you know, it, it's again, sort of a metaphor for the whole conflict um, and how food can we bring us together. And I couldn't believe in the film, the connection of the food, for example, between Chef Ali and Chef Shlomi, um, where you had, Chef Shlomi, who came, who has a restaurant in Haifa named Mayan Habira, which was, he's a third generation Israeli. His, his grandfather came from Eastern Europe, lost his entire family in the Holocaust, came over and created this restaurant. And Shlomi is all about continuing the legacy of his grandfather because his grandfather passed away and left him the recipe, didn't leave him the recipes. Frankly, he says it was one half of this and two hand, one hand of this, two hands of that, right? Um, but he figured out how to continue those beautiful recipes of his grandfather and made it into this very successful restaurant. And what was crazy was that he was paired with Chef 
Ali Khatib, who also was all about continuing the legacy of his Syrian grandmother and bringing kishik like you referenced and other Syrian dishes that are his legacy. All he wants to do is bring these dishes into the Israeli culinaria and how the two chefs bonded. I couldn't believe it. And it was so beautiful to me. Um, and you know, a lot of people also comment on that relationship a lot on the film in the film. And I, I just think it was very fortuitous. Yeah, it's definitely one of the, the most kind of special. Yeah, it's like a magic thing, watching a magic thing kind of unfold between two people, definitely. Right? It was. Yeah. It was really magical, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, after I saw your film, I was thinking about the fact that a certain style of food documentary has become really um, ubiquitous in the past few years, I think. And it probably has to do with... Um, Netflix and shows like Chef's Table um, and that kind of style that has lots of long takes and sort of orchestral music it's almost a bit like novelistic in that it seems to want to kind of elevate particular foods and cuisines and sort of these solitary figures who are like rescuing you know <laughs> this thing that's about to disappear and it, like it's often really great and like I watch all of it but I feel like it's also started to I feel a bit formulaic, almost like the formula kind of overtakes the subject a bit. And I was thinking that your film feels quite different in that way, actually, in that it seems to have more kind of kinetic energy, like a bit more sort of chaos, almost like what I imagine being one of the, in one of those kitchens <laughs> is like. And I was wondering if that was a conscious decision on your on your part to kind of move away from that sort of style that you seem to be seeing everywhere. I mean, for me, a little bit, I, I definitely wanted to keep the high aesthetics of those shows. That was really important to me. So the score was so important to me. And I'm very grateful to Omar Aldib, who, you know, we helped bring this, this uh, score together with the help of incredible musicians and people are, are really reacting incredibly well to that. So that was really important. So is the cinematography, Ofer Ben Yehuda in, in Israel is this incredible uh, cinematographer. And so were the fonts and the maps and the graphics. And those were done by Nicholas Ash Bateman, who's a, an incredible director on his own. He just did The Wanting Mayor, which has become this big uh, success here. And um, so the aesthetics for me were very important, but I do love the way you're referencing. Yes, it was important to me to, it is chaotic a little bit there. I wanted to, it, I tried my best to capture the authenticity of it. And I, I feel like hopefully that is coming across. So I was not trying to candy coat it or over, uh, over produce it, let's say. Um, but it was important to balance it, right? To capture the authenticity, but still have the high um, aesthetics. And it, it's been really just, well, the other thing I would say for me that I found was so interesting and what I loved about making this film is just, I didn't go, I wonder, I would love to know in David Gelb's Chef's Table, again, I'm a huge fan, mm -hmm. but I would wonder if they are scripting a lot of it ahead of time or not. I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you my situation for Breaking Bread. And that was, it got made and written in the editing room, right? That's what's so cool. It's like you get this footage and you can give this footage, there's 60 hours of footage. You can give this footage 
to 10 filmmakers and you could have had 10 absolutely different films. And I mean, from scratch, it could have literally been a completely su different subject matter. You could have had a whole film on Mayan Habira, right? Mm -hmm. You could have had a whole film on North. You could have had nothing to do with the festival or somebody could have told that festival in a totally different voice than mine. So for me, it was such a cool process to take that footage and just go through the sculpting process, draft after draft and making it come out to what it was. And that all happened after the fact. So maybe that answers your question as well. And the, the it's again, for me, the last spice to this, if I can add is just food. As I said, food is food drives me, you know, I I'm connected to food for me. When my father passed away, the most important thing for me was to get his set of Moroccan painted dishes, you know, because they would, I could remember these connections with him through those dishes. And so food, drives me so it's the most incredible compliment when I'm getting uh messages like oh this film reminded me of the big night I mean come on that's like one of my favorite films um so anything like that just makes me so happy great um yeah as I said before I was you know we were super hungry after seeing the film and we, you, know, you kind of be like I hope the recipe book comes out you know but in a way that I am just so you know I am oh. working on a recipe book for anybody interested sign up at breakingbreadmovie.com and uh I'm yeah I'm hoping that that will come together Right. It's a, like a companion book just with the recipes from fantastic. The yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we want. <laughs> yes. Everybody's um, asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was interested in, to ask you what it's like to shoot food um, in kitchens in particular and how difficult or challenging that is. Well, so the magic answer to that, and pe people ask that a lot too, is is my director of photography of Ben Yehuda. So when I went to Israel and had really not a connection with it, or certainly with the film industry there, and try, I turned out there was a, a friend of my brother's here whose mother was a producer there. And I reached out to her and I said, hello, I'm going to go make this documentary about food. Can you please put me in touch with the best director of photography of food that does food in Israel that you, can, that you know of? And I was directed to Ofer Ben Yehuda. And my goodness, thank goodness, because again, this was a film made on a very small budget to be able to capture the footage that we did and have people commenting about it. And when I say we didn't style anything, we did it. This was a one take thing. You know, if you, for example, we, this gorgeous montage of knafe, which is that beautiful dessert made out of cheese sprinkled with pistachios that makes you want to drool that was shot in you know in one take he just i'd say offer please go in and do your magic and he'd have 20 minutes and he'd go and he'd film you know the process they'd be making it from scratch he'd film it from the beginning to the end and voila that was it no one take boom you know and uh so that's the that's really the answer the answer is to get the best person you can get to shoot the best footage you can get in a situation like this where you're not styling and you're and I actually don't I'm glad that it wasn't styled I like this feel to it this beautiful imagery but it still feels real it it you know you can you can you want to eat it you want to taste it it doesn't look plastic it doesn't look like a commercial you know yeah, yeah. no it definitely there's a very special energy where you you can feel um history in in the gestures and in the actions but not rehearsal if that makes sense 
Yes. Um, which is really, yeah, which is really special. Kind of, it makes you want to be there to see it, you know, yeah, in front of you or something, which is really exciting. Thank you so much, Alexia. It was so wonderful speaking with you. And yes, if people want to go out, I say go make some great reservations at a wonderful restaurant to, to have a great evening out, go to the movie and you'll be hungry and get a great dinner afterwards, preferably Middle Eastern. Great idea. <laughs> Thank <you. laughs> Thanks again. Each episode, we feature an audio postcard from writers, filmmakers or curators across the globe. This week, Carrie McQueen of Art with Impact sends us a postcard from San Francisco. Oh, hello there. <laughs> My name is Carrie McQueen. I am the founder and executive director of Art with Impact. We are a charity in the United States and Canada that works primarily with colleges and universities to create conversations about mental health using art as the, as the lens and the way in. Uh, today, I'm excited to tell you about Voices with Impact, which is an annual program that we run where uh, we provide production funding for uh, five-minute films about specific topics connected to mental health. So uh, this year, the two topics that we have are grief and resilience and substance use disorder. And so we're accepting proposals that... Um, talk about what film you'd like to make, a five-minute film, about either or both of those topics. Um, and so basically what we're looking for are really genuine stories um, with personal connections and something that needs to get out there into the world. Uh, you can check out more information on our website. It's artwithimpact.org. And just click on the little details uh, button where you see the big phoenix sticking up and uh, check out the RFP there and I hope to see your proposals. Thanks. That's all for this episode. We'll be back with another one in a few weeks time. The Senses of Cinema podcast is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Production and technical assistance by Georgia Imfield and theme tuned by Asher Pope.